So good evening. This first day of a retreat can seem endless sometimes, can't it? As the mind and body adjust to this schedule, getting up so early, sitting and walking. So congratulations for surviving the first day. Only, what, 30 or so more to go, or 60 or however? But anyway, a good start. And... If you're new to long retreat practice, perhaps even if you're not, really important to remember that this is a marathon, not a sprint. You don't need to get anywhere quickly. You just need to settle in to being here, to really being present, and invite that settling in in the gentlest way that you know how to do or that you can invite. because long retreats have their own arc, their own unfolding. If you've been on a number of shorter retreats, five or seven or ten days, you probably know, you know, the settling in period and then the middle part of the retreat and then the ending part. Well, on a shorter retreat, they can just go by like that, you know, a day to settle in, a few days in the middle and boom, you're out the door at the other end. It's not like that here. Um, so the settling in period can actually take longer. Every part of that arc takes a bit, a lo- bit longer on a long retreat. It can seem to take longer to settle in. We just taught not so long ago, actually the four of us, um, the six-week retreat at IMS, and two weeks in, people were saying, starting to say things like, I, I feel I finally arrived. Um, because it really does take time to move into this pace of life and practice in a real full and complete way. So just to give yourself that understanding, nowhere to get in a hurry. There's something in the psychology that just kind of knows we're in this for the long haul, and so it can take some time to settle in. You have the time. And in that, what you can explore, begin to open to, is what we call the timeless realm. And that's the beauty or the power of a long retreat is, it's a bit like Groundhog Day, we just got through that, every day is kind of the same. Um, Not much changes around here. You know, after today, today was a little unusual with the talking in the afternoon. Not from now on in, it's really just day after day, the same schedule. And the beauty or the power of that is just letting go of that intensity and drivenness and busyness of our everyday lives and really arriving here. You know, Spirit Rock is now your home for these months, month or months. This is your address. Hopefully just your physical address where your body and mind are, not your email address, no emails during this month uh, or two months. And that's the, the great benefit of a retreat like this is just to unplug, to actually let go of that intensity that many of us live with day in and day out of busyness and schedules and meetings and and the to-do list and emails and all of the ways that we're so plugged in at the moment. So it's an unusual thing to do. And I don't know how many of you um, had to try and describe to family, friends, colleagues what you're actually doing for this month or two. And they're like, you're what? You're not going to speak? For that many weeks, you're not going to be in touch with family and friends. It's like a lot of uh, incredulity that anyone would willingly do that. But 
many of us here and people all over the planet, of course, have been doing this kind of practice for thousands of years and this, this sense of retreating, of, of letting go of that intensity of, of lifestyle. But it's so unusual in this day and age that uh, there's a story going around on the internet now. It's making the news about this young college student called uh, Jake Riley, who's getting, he's become famous because he unplugged for 90 days. He calls it the Amish experiment, where he um, with, went without a cell phone, email, or social media. And people just read that and they kind of go, what? You did what? You know, but you're doing it. Where do, you know, we're doing it all the time. But this is such a rare thing that this guy's probably going to write a book about it, you know, that actually not check your Facebook or Twitter account for 90 days. So this is what he said. He said he had this idea that, he, you know, he was just spending too much time doing all this kind of stuff. He said, I was just going to give up the phone, Riley, 24. He's 24 years old, said. Then I realized that all of my communication would just migrate to the other sources. I realized I had to cut the ties completely if I was going to feel any effect. The first two weeks, he said, were anxiety-ridden. All of a sudden, you get home on a Friday night and there's no one around and it's just you and your thoughts. It's very scary. (laughs) Well, welcome to retreat. And this person who was interviewing him, this young man said, how much time would you typically spend on social media sites, texting and so forth every day? He answered, it was pretty bad. I was reading every single tweet and I followed 250 people. Then I would waste a good hour and a half on Facebook. I was sending more than 1,500 texts a month. I never really counted minutes on the phone, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was like six, six to 900, 600 to 900. And then he said, part of what sparked this was an experience he had. He says, I live with three guys, and we had two of our best friends in visiting from New York City. We only see these guys once a year. We were at the University of Wisconsin watching a Badgers football game or something like that. Every single person had either a laptop or a cell phone. That's just kind of funny to begin with. Then I was like, what are we all doing? I asked everyone what they were doing, and somebody's playing words with friends, someone is playing Angry Birds, someone's playing online trivia. Nobody's really doing anything, just sitting quietly. It's just like we were all looking forward to this reunion, and we're just sitting there numbing our minds. And I'm sure he is not unusual. You know, that a bunch of friends get together, and they're all just, you know, looking at their cell phone or their computer or texting or whatever. This is the way our culture seems to be evolving, especially for younger people. Um, And it's a little sad. And he had a whole revelation about what could happen with his relationships and his state of mind and clarity when he withdrew from all this. So we have this opportunity. You know, hopefully none of you are quite as intense as he is about your online connection Um, But we're here to learn to work with those thoughts that can be a little scary. So it's not kind of an unknown or strange experience, but to actually turn towards our inner experience and and get to know it, to, to know and understand our mind and how to train it so that we're connecting more and more deeply with the truth of things, with the way things are, instead of numbing out or, you know, this endless trivia that we can get involved in. 
how to actually wake up. This is what the opportunity is here, to unplug and plug into a, another source of, of truth. Guy and I actually did a, a self-retreat to begin the year. We started, I started just after Christmas and did a couple of weeks of self-retreat at home. So we weren't as supported or as secluded as you will be here. We were living at home, having to cook and take care of ourselves, go shopping. And I had some work I had to do, so wasn't as secluded as, as retreats ideally are. And I just saw how restless my mind could be. You know, doing two weeks of practice, sitting down, meditating on a regular basis, and the mind just going to this and that, one thing after the other, past, future, as it does. And so I tried, you know, the usual techniques that I tell people to try, you know, counting the breath in, out, counting to a hundred. And they work to a certain extent, but in my practice now, I didn't want to be so narrow. I didn't want to just focus on the breath. So I came up with this practice that I really liked. And what I would do, it was still with the breath, but it wasn't just focusing on the sensations of the breath. On the in-breath, I would say here, and on the out-breath, I would say now. And there's just something really energetic about those two words. With the here, it was kind of a gathering in on the in-breath, like here. And then the now on the out-breath are relaxing, and I would just open up to anything that was happening in the six sense doors. Check in with sounds, the body, thoughts were present. And I really liked that practice because it had a continuity to it, brought me back into the moment, but it also opened up the practice. So it had that um, sense of spaciousness. And so I used it a lot. Every time I noticed that the mind was going on about something, I just remember, oh, here, now. I had to do it a lot. But at, and at times I would just say it over and over again, almost like a mantra. But because those words had a resonance, it actually invited this sense of presence. And I got to watch the mind. And it, it's so interesting. I mean, I'm sure you've seen this already. You have this sincere intention to practice. I heard how beautiful the clarifying of intentions was in the community practice you did this afternoon. We come to retreat with such sincere intentions. I mean, we want to be here and we want to be present. And what happens? La-di-da-di-da. You know, the mind just goes off here and there with all of this stuff. And so we really see that we have to pay attention to what the mind is doing. We can't force the mindfulness back into the present moment. It has to be an invitation. It has to be some kind of preferring of the stillness and the presence to movement, the stillness and the presence to distraction. This is a radical shift. And we have to make it over and over again. It's not like we just determine that and then it happens. We have to keep refining that, preferencing, and start to shift our belief or our understanding. You know, just like those kids, they, you know, their idea of happiness I mean, I, don't, I wonder if you really asked them, was that happiness? But it's what they were so conditioned to do was, you know, tw texting and tweeting and, you know, do playing angry birds or something. Um, we really have to shift that, to see that that isn't happiness, that distraction isn't happiness, restlessness isn't happiness, that happiness is actually to be found in the here and now. 
And sometimes this is challenging because here and now isn't that exciting. Maybe not that comfortable. Body's aching or tired or stiff, mind is restless. How do we come to make that choice again and again and again? So it really is a shift in a whole belief patterning that letting go is preferable to holding on. That we don't actually need to engage in these big projects of fixing or controlling, but actually just allowing this sense of presence again and again and again. So this trust in that, trust in presence, trust in mindfulness, to keep constantly affirming that, whether you use a practice like here and now or some conscious recognition of this tendency of the mind and your, your trust in the capacity for mindfulness to open to um, more freedom than the distractedness will ever release, reveal to us. Because you start to see, you know, I'm sure you're all aware of this, we're deeply wired to make connections in the mind. You know, you just track things, and you find you, you were just sitting happily in the meditation room and all of a sudden you're in Chicago or back in 10th grade or, you know, have, replaying an argument with your husband or partner or whatever. You know, the mind just does this. So it has to be this willingness to, to let go of that, to not get fixed or identified around that, but actually to come to prefer the simplicity of here and now, especially on a long retreat where there's going to be a lot of moments of here and now. And so we're having, as I said, to keep reframing that experience to this preferencing. So we cultivate mindfulness to do that, this moment-to-moment attention of what's happening here and now. This is the foundation or the cornerstone of our practice. And in essence, so simple, and as you know, so difficult to do because of this tendency to distraction, to busyness. It's actually interesting these days, mindfulness is becoming really mainstream. I'm sure you've noticed. It used to be Zen was hip. It probably still is a little hipper in some ways, but they've got a cooler aesthetic than we tend to have. But, you know, it used to be Zen and archery and Zen and motorcycle maintenance and Zen and flower arranging or whatever. Now it's mindfulness, and it's mindfulness in therapy and mindfulness in stress reduction and mindfulness in prisons and in schools and in businesses. Mindfulness is really becoming relatively mainstream, I mean, compared to what it used to be. And it's quite a, a, a word that people know about. And so here at Spirit Rock, we've been having a lot of discussions. Well, what does that mean as mindfulness moves into the mainstream culture, often without any reference to the Dharma, to the teachings of the Buddha? And so it's quite a, kind of a conundrum that we're tussling with. You know, Do we engage with that and, and help support that, or do we have another role to play? So it's interesting to see that in some ways mindfulness is going to be the doorway into um, the West for the Dhamma. It's going to be through mind rather than the teachings of wisdom or whatever. It's through this practice of mindfulness. And I really think that mindfulness is a, a key and in some ways revolutionary teaching 
of the Buddha. A lot of scholars these days debate, you know, what's unique to the Buddha or central to the Buddha's teachings, what was around at the time that he was teaching that he just kind of absorbed and even co-opted and what was unique to him. And they'll talk about dependent origination and karma and the Four Noble Truths and these other teachings. Um, And, you know, there's a lot to be said about that. But often I find in these discussions they don't much talk about mindfulness. Yet I think that was in his time revolutionary in the way he taught it and practiced it. And I think as is happening today will be revolutionary in the integration of the Dhamma into the West, that this teaching of mindfulness is key. At the time of the Buddha, there were lots of practices. I I talked a little bit about the Buddha's journey. Um, He did the, the, what was really common as a meditation practice was samadhi, samatha practice, concentration, deep states of concentration. A lot of emphasis on rites and rituals for purification or philosophical debates. And he just, he, he kept the technique of concentration practice, but only as a vehicle to engage with this radical exploration of experience that, he, that we now call insight meditation or vipassana, that's based on mindfulness, that's based on paying attention. So this is really the heart of what we'll be doing here this month, this moment-to-moment attention. So mindfulness is key. Yet this word itself is actually not that easy to define. Different traditions define it differently. Different teachers will talk about it differently. Um, And so I want to explore a little bit, what are we talking about when we use this word mindfulness? The Pali, uh, the language that these teachings were written down in, uh, the word that's being translated is sati. The root of this word is something to do with memory or remembering. And it's interesting to keep this in mind as we explore this term, sati or mindfulness, that as they often say, being mindful is easy. Remembering to be mindful is really difficult. But there is something about this this sense of memory, of remembering, of, of bringing things into memory, into the mind. This is part of the root of mindfulness. And its essence is, of course, being in the moment, this here and now that I was talking about. But there's more to it than that. And that's, again, what I want to explore. Another teacher I was teaching with in talking about mindfulness gave in as an example three people and asked the question, are they being mindful? He talked about a rock climber. No, starting with a burglar, a rock climber, and a surgeon. So what do you think? A, a burglar, someone creeping into your home while you're sleeping. Are they being mindful? You're seeing a lot of yeses. A rock climber, you know, climbing up there, being mindful. Surgeon, having to... So they have very different intentions, though, don't they? The burglar has an unwholesome intention. Rock climber has a more selfish intention, just survival. Surgeon could have an altruistic intention. Does that make any difference to the mind? No. I would disagree. And why I would disagree is what we're talking about here is what's called samasati, right mindfulness or wise mindfulness. It's a path factor. It's one of the noble eightfold path that's part again of the 
Buddha life list, you probably know that already, the fourth, fourth noble truth is the noble eightfold path. Samasati is right mindfulness. This word sama is usually translated as right or wise. Um, and that's what we're practicing here. So in some ways you could say these people were being mindful, um, but true mindfulness leads to insight. Samasati leads to insight. It leads to letting go. It leads to disidentification. It lessens suffering. And I don't think you could say necessarily that that was what was happening to the three examples that I gave. Possibly, you know, they could wake up, but it's not their intention. Mindfulness has this intentionality behind it. We don't need to be referring to that all the time, but it's definitely there in the understanding of what right mindfulness is. Bhikkhu Bodhi, that great uh, scholar of Buddhism, says, in the proper practice of right mindfulness, sati has to be integrated with sampajanya, this word means clear comprehension, and it is only when these two work together that right mindfulness can fulfill its intended purpose. Samasati, right mindfulness, must always be guarded by right view, steered by right intention, grounded in the three ethical factors, and cultivated in conjunction with samavayama, right effort. Right effort necessarily presupposes the distinction of mental states into the unwholesome and the wholesome. And what he's doing there is putting right mindfulness in the context of all of the other seven path factors, factors of the Eightfold Path. So it's really part of this whole training that includes right intention and right effort. Right mindfulness can't be separated from those. So this is really important to understand as we begin this, these weeks of practice of mindfulness, that the purpose of mindfulness is to develop insight, and primarily the shorthand for that is into the three characteristics. We'll probably talk about that at some point. Into impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self. These are so key. And it, it, the purpose is to develop wholesome states and reduce or let go of unwholesome states. We can know that mindfulness is working when we start to see these aspects happening. So this is why... Mindfulness isn't just bare awareness, which is what you could really say those three examples that I gave were practicing. That's, an, that's a part of mindfulness. But when we're talking about samasati, there's much more to it than that that we'll be exploring in these weeks to come. A teacher I've practiced with, actually a number of us who've practiced with, who's really helpful in clarifying the role of mindfulness and how it develops wisdom is Sayadaw Utejaniya. And he actually has a whole book that he calls Awareness Alone is Not Enough. And it's really pointing to this, this, just bare awareness isn't enough. It needs to be in concert with wisdom, that there needs to be some understanding of the context within which we're practicing for mindfulness to truly develop. Sayadaw Utejaniya says, the basic objective of meditation is to improve the quality of the mind. So we'll give you a test at the end and just see, you know, and then you'll know if, if there's been any improvement. The work of awareness is just to know, the work of wisdom is to differentiate between what is skillful 
and unskillful. Wisdom inclines towards the good but is not attached to it. It shies away from what is not good but has no aversion to it. Wisdom recognizes the differences between skillful and unskillful and it clearly sees the undesirability of the unskillful. So it's talking about bringing this wisdom in to our practice so that it's not just you know, lifting, moving, placing, there's this sense of what is being cultivated, this sense of intentionality in practice. And again, this doesn't have to be some heavy-handed thing that this is always hanging over us, that, you know, that I'm not mindful enough unless this is all happening. Um, you know, often it is just lifting, moving, placing. And that's wonderful. You know, that's, that's the basis of our practice. But there has to be this sense of interest there. We have to get curious about experience. One of the great um, examples of that, of this, this curiosity f- from someone who, actually I don't know if she has a Buddhist leaning or not, but Mary Oliver, that great nature poet, um, you just sense how aware she is of her inner and outer experience. And this poem is called mindful. So it's definitely exploring this territory of the interest that we need to bring. Every day I see or hear something that more or less kills me with delight, that leaves me like a needle in the haystack of light. It was what I was born for, to look, to listen, to lose myself inside this soft world. So again, she's turning her attention inward inside this soft world, to instruct myself over and over again in joy and acclamation. Nor am I talking about the exceptional, the fearful, the dreadful, the very extravagant, but of the ordinary, the common, the very drab, the daily presentations. Oh, good scholar, I say to myself, how can you help but grow wise with such teachings as these? The untrimmable light of the world the oceans shine, the prayers that are made out of grass. So I love these lines. To lose myself inside this soft world, to really explore it. And how can you help but grow wise with these teachings, such teachings as these? Just by paying attention. This is what mindfulness can bring. If we bring that level of interest, that level of refinement to the experience. So part of this wisdom that I'm talking about, even as we keep coming back to the here and now, is the context within which this experience is happening. And I call this the three times. So this moment is the most important of those. Jack Cornfield says, you probably heard this line, the sign in the Las Vegas casino that says you must be present to win. And to be mindful, you must be present in this moment to actually know what's happening. But it's not the only thing that we need to be aware of. Because often, as you know, we're lost. We're lost in past or future. So what's the common experience? We're lost and we become present. As we've said, often say, be grateful for that. Don't judge yourself or berate or, you know, count how long you've been lost. Great, you're present again. 
But this wisdom invites us to explore a little what's actually going on. What's happening in the mind in that moment of waking up? The way Sayadaw Uteshaniya often invites us to practice is to notice, is greed, aversion, or delusion present? You might recognize these as the three kalesas, poisons, torments of mind. These, these really common experiences, greed, aversion, and delusion. So we're lost, and then that moment of waking up, instead of just slamming back onto the breath, you know, let's forge ahead, it's like taking that moment to just recognize the lay of the land, the, the climate of the mind. So we can even ask, you know, what's the attitude right now? Or is there greed, aversion, and delusion present? Or you just check, you know, what's happening in the mind, and you can kind of see, oh, I was holding on to something, or I was really irritated, or, huh? You know, no, no clue. It's just gone in a fog. It's delusion. So we start to, to connect with that. And so it's this little bit, this very minute amount of how did I get here? Not the, you know, the connection, oh, I thought of this, and then that led me to that, and I was that, and I said, and, and you know, you can do that sometimes, but it's not that helpful. It's just this kind of snapshot. What was happening? How did I get here? And how does the body feel? coming out of that swarm of thoughts and ideas and moods and emotions. So you check in. So it can happen in an instant, this recognition, oh, I was thinking about, you know, whatever. Um, what I did before, you know, did I, did I leave, turn the stove off or lock the front door or, you know, whatever it is you've left behind. And that, but then we're in the present moment. As we're doing this, we're not in the past, we're actually fully aware in the present moment, and then we make a choice where to direct the attention to next. Back to the breath, open to the body, sounds, aware of what's happening in the mind. And so that's, it's, you know, we're never actually in the future, that's impossible, but it's directing our experience towards the next moment, and we kind of start to see, well, I made that choice, how did that work out? How, you know, did it, did it go in the direction I hoped to go? You know, did I, did I get, stay connected? Or did the, you know, the next thought just, just come in and overtake everything and I was lost again? You know, so maybe I'll try something different next time. And so we see, what, what are we cultivating? This is the sense of cultivating the wholesome. Did I get connected to experience? Did I open up? And so there's this sense of intentionality in practice, this sense of direction. It's a direction like a compass, though. It's not like railroad tracks. It's not like there's a right way to do this and everyone should be having the same experience and going in the same direction. But it's more this adjusting, that we're always making this refinement of experience to more and more in alignment with what we're actually looking to cultivate. And so there's this sense of flexibility in, in this process that we're in. Because what we're looking for is some kind of balance, this middle way. There's this great story um, of Ajahn Chah, his teacher, Thai forest meditation master, unfortunately dead now, where a student came and complained to him and said, you know, I've heard you give lots of teachings to lots of students, and you're always saying different things, you know. Haven't you got a message that you want to tell people, and it's clear, and that's what you tell them to do? 
And Ajahn Chah just laughed and he said, you know what it's like? It's like I see all these people walking down this road and there's a really steep ditch on one side and a really steep ditch on the other. And some of them are veering over to the left, so I say, go right, go right. And some of them are veering over to the right, so I say, go left, go left. So it sounds like different instructions, but it's really just trying to find that balance, that middle way. So that, that's a great metaphor for our own internal balancing. It's like sometimes we're going a little too tight, a little too striving, back to more balance. Sometimes it's a little too loose. It's not not, um, clear enough. There's not enough clarity in the experience. So we come back to center. And so the challenge is how to do that, how to do that balancing without falling into craving or aversion, wanting the peace, wanting wisdom, wanting insight, not liking the distracted mind or the aching body. This is our challenge. And this is why we call it a training. It's not something that we do perfectly, but we we try again and again. We bring that sense of presence again and again. And to really trust that mindfulness itself has a wisdom to it, if we're engaged with it in the way that I've been talking about. And then what's developed is what's called samasati, mindfulness wisdom. Buddha Dasa, another great Thai forest meditation master, used to use this term all the time. He wouldn't talk much about sati, because he think, well, that's just mindfulness. What we want is samasati, mindfulness wisdom. This is, this is, sorry, samasati is right mindfulness that brings the wisdom in and develops, sorry, I, I misspoke, leads to satipanya. I knew that didn't sound right. Satipanya is mindfulness wisdom. Sati mindfulness panya wisdom. That's the kind of sati that we want, sati panya. And Buddha Dasa used to use that term all the time as describing what happens when we bring this clarity of attention to experience. The wisdom naturally comes in. Sati panya naturally sees that if we're clinging, we're going to suffer. If we're identifying, there'll be contraction and resistance and, and all kinds of uh, struggle. Satipanya actually just naturally has that movement of letting go and brings in balance and equanimity. So satipanya is what we're looking to cultivate here. Because it's very clear, you probably all in the intentions you spoke about this afternoon had aspirations for greater kindness or wisdom or freedom or happiness or compassion. It's what we're looking for. Yet, as I said before, we sit down and, and what happens? There's this swirl of distraction and confusion and drifting and wanting and not wanting. And did I send that email? And I wonder what's happening to so-and-so and how are the kids doing? And, you know, what am I going to do when I leave this retreat? And it's weeks away. The mind just goes all over the place. And we can end up in this feedback loop of restlessness leading to contraction that leads to further restlessness. And it's, it's really 
challenging on the mind and body. So we need to pay attention to that. And it's why we have already started emphasizing and will continue to do so, this relaxing. It's coming into the present moment and just settling. You know, we can't force that settling, but as much as possible to invite it so that that contraction can begin to be released and it won't feed that cycle. I have a a niece in Australia who has had ADD and she's getting into her teen years now, so it's lessening a little bit. She said something really interesting. She told her mother, she said, yeah, I still have that same energy, that vibrating, really difficult energy, but now I know it and I can just sort of sit with it. I don't have to rush around and, and act out of it. And it was such a wise response from this young girl to really learn to work with that kind of agitated energy. And so this is what we as meditators also need to work with, how to take that tension and energy that so many of us have accumulated and actually learn to breathe with it, release it, let it go, so that the mind and the body can come more and more into stillness and cultivate this uh, satipanya that's so helpful. When I think about humans historically, you know, we were bred to be hunter-gatherers. That's how we evolved. And so a lot of movement in that, a lot of activity of walking and running and making stuff, all of the energy in that. And now what do we do? I mean, here on retreat, what do we do? We sit around a lot. But, you know, here at least you get to walk regularly. Most of us spend eight hours a day at a computer or sitting down in some way. So there's all this restless energy, pent-up energy, and it's been directed into the mind, just like those guys were describing at the beginning of the talk. You know, just this energy that they're releasing into all of this sort of mindless activity. Here we really want to take that energy and see if we can redirect it into the mindfulness. And we'll probably talk more about restlessness as one of the hindrances, but one of the ways to work with it is, you know, one is to give it a big space, but one I like to do is see if I can just redirect it into being really present with what's happening. So it's just a redirecting. And just to see that there actually is something powerful about landing in the here and now and not believing in the allure of restlessness, the allure of distraction, the allure of the 10,000 thoughts. Again, one of our favorite philosophers, Calvin and Hobbes, talking about being in the moment, and they're climbing a tree. Calvin's going first, and he's speaking. He said, I suppose the, sec- the secret to happiness is learning to appreciate the moment as he keeps climbing. I, for example, take great pleasure in being right here, right now, doing what we're doing. And Hobbes, who's always the voice of reason, says, of course, you're supposed to be at school right now. (laughs) And Calvin says, I couldn't appreciate those moments. So we're always judging. We're always preferring something else. How can we land here and now? So that someone gave me this cartoon. It's called The Pet Calendar, and it's got a dog and a cat and they're peeling off the page of a calendar, you know, to see, you know, it's a daily calendar. The one they're peeling off says now, and the next one says now. You know, it's like now, dog and cat, now. How do we have that sense of now, that now is all we need? Now is, is what's, uh, where we actually live our lives. And to see that mindfulness, when we cultivate it, this satipanya, allows a choice. 
This is the revelationary, revolutionary key to mindfulness, is this choice point that gets created. Usually we're in this, like, you know, like the hamster on the wheel. We're just running, and we're just beset with thought after thought after thought. Do this, do that, don't do that, whatever, whatever. Mindfulness inserts itself. And it's like, you know, they'd say for athletes, when they're in the zone, the ball gets really big or time slows down. Well, that's what it's like when meditators in the zone. We, this, this mindfulness inserts itself. And what seemed just a passing stream of stuff, this break gets inserted where we can actually see what's happening, make a choice. This is so key. And once we're there, awake, alert, satipanya is present, the choice is more likely a wise response. And so we start to change the old habits of distractedness and restlessness. As Maharaj, an Indian saint, says, of what we understand we are the masters, of what we do not understand we are the slaves. So as we bring this wisdom in, there's a, a radical shift in the way we relate to our experience. And we start to relate to experience more wisely. We start to see this great line that Joseph Goldstein always says, thoughts have the power that we choose to give them. It's not about not thinking. The mind will think. It's the nature of the mind. We've trained it for all these years to produce all of these thoughts. It's not going to stop because we come on retreat. I'm sure you've noticed that. But it's really about looking at the nature of thought and where those thoughts lead and starting to develop the skills to create a wiser relationship to experience. And we do this by this little bit tracking the experience, as I talked about earlier. So we get a sense of what we're cultivating we get a sense, oh, if I dwell on this kind of thought, this memory, this, this sense of agitation, this frustration, this relationship, I end up in a knot, or I end up sad, or I end up angry. We, we see that. It's the conditioned nature of things. And we also start to see the possibility, and this is radical, that we can let go of a thought not by pushing it away out of aversion or judgment, but actually by seeing its nature. It's impermanent, it's conditioned. If we don't give it power, if we don't believe in it, again, as we always say, it's like a bubble, like a mirage, like, like a fog that can just dissipate. So we keep coming in to seeing, how am I relating to this? What's actually happening? in the mind and the body. What, how am I, learn, am I learning from this? And in posing these questions, I, I don't mean for you to go overboard, you know, with, with challenging or, you know, interrogating yourself all the time. This is something you just do every now and then. But particularly if you wake up out of a mind storm, you know, you've been lost and you know you've just been gone and thinking and it's gone here and there and up and down and you're kind of exhausted. It's like, what was that? Just to, to really take that moment or two to check, you know, what, what was in the mind. And then how is the body feeling as a result of that? Often contracted. I often find a lot of my practice is noticing distraction, coming back, 
relaxing. Notice distraction, come back, relax. Allows me to be more present. So we realize that we can't control our thoughts, but we can work skillfully with them. And we see the conditioned nature or the tendencies of certain kinds of thoughts. Again, Sayadotejaniya says, when the defilements are strong, the mind will be interested in things that feed the defilements. If wisdom is strong, the mind will be interested in what supports wisdom. This is satipanya. There's a natural um, wisdom. There's a natural interest. When the wisdom is there, there's a natural interest in What's more wholesome? What's more freeing? Where is greater happiness or peace? So we start to see that, that our practice isn't passive. It isn't what I call being a lump on a log, you know, bear awareness, oh, this is, you know, this is what's happening, this is just happening. I'm stuck in aversion or wanting or longing or loneliness. We can engage with our practice. We can bring this quality of investigation to experience. Starting from the mindfulness, starting from the here now of acknowledging and accepting what's happening, but actually having this sense of options then. And the simplest option is always just mindfulness. As I said, satipanya, it's often enough. Mindfulness has this capacity to bring a wise response in. It just naturally lets go of struggle naturally brings us back into the moment to bring present with what's happening. But we start to learn about how to work with the mind, how to reduce the hindrances and our, our fascination with them, how to increase the wholesome. And again, we'll talk more about this, that we need to notice the wholesome qualities when we're present when they're present, of peacefulness or calm or interest or energy or joy or whatever. This is also helpful, really important. But it's out of knowing how to cultivate them, how to recognize them, how to acknowledge them. And again, we'll talk more about this. This is just to give overviews of different things that we can do, but you can use antidotes. If you really find that you're being caught in a mind storm that you're struggling with something, to use the practice of metta that we'll begin teaching tomorrow, of loving kindness and acceptance that just reorients to a wish towards happiness for yourself and for others. Sometimes going to something neutral, if you're really caught, is better than, than you know trying to be present for it. If there's a strong emotion that's present, to go to sounds or something more spacious. Again, we'll talk more about this. But we're always looking to balance. And this, this needs satipanya, this needs the wisdom to know what this balance is, to balance dullness with energy or interest, restlessness with calm. And as we just start to be willing to work in this way, we learn this really important lesson that's so huge for our practice, to, to actually not fuel the judging mind that, that's so prevalent, especially on retreat, that we start to see that it's not what's happening that's important, it's how we're relating to it. And if you could just remember one thing from this talk, it would be that. It's not what's happening that's important, 
It's how we're relating to it. Are we pushing it away? Are we averse to it? Are we holding on? Are we identifying with it? Are we spaced out and not knowing what's happening? Inside Utejaniya says, what is happening is never a problem if we're mindful of it. It doesn't seem like that in the moment. You know, it seems like my aching knee is a big problem and unless I can get rid of it, I'll never be able to meditate. Or my mind is the only mind in this hall that's filled with, you know, useless and, and repetitive thoughts. And it's not true. It's not true that your mind is the only mind, because believe me, uh, if you could hear other people's minds, you would know that they are also going through these same kind of loops and we're just all recycling the same old stuff. It's just moving from person to person, going around the hole, be kind of despairing. But it's really how you relate to it that's important. So we have all of these weeks to practice together, to explore this mind with mindfulness, It's such a rare opportunity, you know, but people have done it for countless centuries, found the value in this kind of practice of turning towards our experience with satipanya, mindfulness, wisdom, and really waking up, waking up to what's here and what's present. There's a beautiful chant that's done every day in many monasteries around the world and certainly at the Amaravati Abhayagiri monasteries that we're particularly connected to and many of those monks and nuns come and teach here. So if you've gone to those monasteries or sat at those retreats, you'll know this chant where they do a recollection of the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha. It's a beautiful chant. In the recollection of the Dhamma, it describes the qualities of the Dhamma that make it so be- uh, valuable. And it says that the Dhamma is sanditiko, akaliko, ehipasiko, opanaiko, pachatam, veditabo, vinyuhiti. And these words are all so powerful. Sanditiko means apparent here and now. Sanditiko. And Sumedho says, you may think of the Dhamma as some kind of thing that is out there, something you find somewhere else. But sanditiko means that it is imminent, it is here and now. The Dhamma is sanditiko. Akaliko, timeless. It's the truth of things. It's not something made up by the Buddha or by us. It is the way things are. This is the Dhamma, akaliko. Ehipasiko, this great word that means encouraging investigation. Also, come and see for yourself. Ehipasiko. Opanaiko, leading inward or onward, can be translated either way. Leading inward, onward. I could even to, to, to actually see that this, this practice has a direction to it. And it's to greater peace and freedom, opanaiko. Pachatam veditabo vinyuhiti, to be experienced individually by the wise. It's not something you just think about or read about. This Dhamma only works if you practice. And so here we have this amazing opportunity to practice this Dhamma that's sanditiko, akaliko, ehipasiko. Opanaiko, pachatam veditabo vinyuhiti. Apparent here and now, 
timeless, encouraging investigation and leading inward to greater freedom and happiness and true peace. This is the possibility, this is the offering of the Dhamma and the practice for these weeks together. So I look forward to continuing this exploration and supporting your practice and sharing these teachings with you. It's truly precious, but not so rare that you need to go home and write a book about it when, when you leave the retreat. So the end of our Dharma talks, we just like to create a few minutes before we move on to the walking period, just to let the words settle. You don't need to change your posture if you wish to get more comfortable, but we just sit in silence for a moment or two and let the words go. Whatever's helpful, obviously, will we'll stay with you. If it wasn't, just to let the words go and settle and trust this present moment arising. So thank you for your attention. There's now about 35 minutes for walking. And then at 9 o'clock there's the last formal sitting of the day and we end that sitting with chanting. So really invite you to come. It always picks the energy up to chant together. And the ch- I think you have the chant sheets that we guess. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.